Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio, and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, the biggest question in California education by far, and that's at both the pre-K-12 and post-secondary level, is how to offer a comprehensive curriculum via distance learning. And engaging curriculum, too. And yeah, John, that's a key point. How do you keep kids engaged and keep on coming back day after day? Absolutely. And there's not all that much time to get it right because schools are opening in just a few weeks. And I sense a lot of anxiety among parents, teachers, and some students, too. You know, distance learning is not anyone's first choice. So we thought we would turn to one person who has actually been offering online learning in multiple ways for over a decade, and pretty successfully at that. We're referring to Sal Khan, whose Khan Academy, which is based in Mountain View, reaches tens of millions of students, not only in the United States, but in dozens of countries throughout the world. It's a pretty amazing story. What started as an online math tutorial for a couple of Sal's cousins in New Orleans back in 2004 is today a not-for-profit organization that really is transforming online education. Its mission, as its motto says, is to provide a free, world-class education for anyone, anywhere. Usage of a site has tripled since the pandemic. Yeah, not surprisingly, I mean, the Khan Academy has jumped in during this crisis to offer resources for parents and schools in response to the pandemic, as of other online services. The Khan Academy even has full-day schedules for each grade that parents and kids can take advantage of, and it includes instructional videos and a personalized learning dashboard for students to study at their own pace. So we're pleased to have Sal Khan with us. Welcome, Sal. Great to be here. The general view of distance learning is that it's really been a disaster for children, at least in terms of the spring, especially for those struggling on the margins of the school system. Uh, you've been a pioneer in, in having kids working remotely, working on their own, working with parents. I'm just wondering whether you agree with that overall view that distance learning sort of by its nature doesn't work very well with kids. I somewhat agree with the view. So I agree with the early part of your statement that it's been a bit of a disaster in the global education system, but especially when we think about uh, the United States. You know, it's hard to, to point a finger, at least for the spring, on at anyone because you know, schools, teachers, and parents and students had pretty much no time to plan. You had, you know, two or three days in many cases before some form of distance learning took place, if it took place. So you can imagine with that little planning... You have schools that are not used to working in this way, many teachers who are not used to working in this way. It's not surprising that the version of distance learning that got implemented was extremely inconsistent and for the most part, not very compelling. Now, you know, as someone, to your point, that I'm a bit of a poster child of, of, of online learning or, or distance learning, whatever you want to call it, I will be the first to say that for most students, especially for younger students, distance learning is not on its own as good as having a blend of online tools and having really high quality in-person experiences. So, you know, I'll just say that full stop. Distance learning should not be viewed as a substitute for a really rich physical experience for the great majority of students. When you get to older students, maybe unusually motivated or precocious students, maybe. Let me ask you about that then, because your work and your courses are more or less supplementary courses. And you've done a lot of work with school districts where your courses are integrated into the school curriculum. But now we're going into this fall where most kids in California 
will be expected to do an entire curriculum online or in some kind of remote fashion. Uh, I'm wondering, one, whether you, you have concerns about that, and two, whether it's feasible. I have huge concerns about it. And then the feasibility of it really depends on expectations and, and quality of implementation. The concerns are what you alluded to. Even if you were to have you know, the Cadillac version of distance learning, you have a significant number of students who might not have access at home, even though there's been heroic efforts to close the digital divide at home by a lot of school districts and states. There's might not be the supports at home, the conditions at home to be able to engage. So that's the first problem. Then there's the problem of how do you get even vaguely close to a Cadillac version of distance learning? The unfortunate thing, what we saw in the spring, for a lot of places, there was nothing. There was just essentially a list of links, you know, and teachers were left to fend for themselves. They didn't really have the supports that they needed to offer something that's consistent and integrated with everything else going on in the school. But there is a version of distance learning that once again is not, shouldn't be viewed as a replacement for physical in-person learning. But if done well and consistently, I think can bridge us uh, in this time period. And to me, that version of distance learning is, yes, let's focus on math, leverage Khan Academy to do student paced learning. Teachers could assign specific skills or they can say, hey, students, get 25% mastery on Khan Academy by this date, get 50% by that date. And then that should be done in coordination with three, four, five synchronous Zoom or video conference sessions a week. And those video conference sessions cannot be just one to many lectures. You know, that might as well just be a video. That's not that compelling even in in-person. If you're doing video conferencing, students need to be pulled out of the screen. So teachers should be cold calling them. They should be putting them into virtual breakouts, having them uh, work on problems together. Because part of it, and this is becoming very clear with COVID, you need to learn the academic material, the skills, the concepts, but you also need a framework where you can be motivated, where you can have community, and where you can form bonds with other people around the topics. Uh, so there's a version, uh, but I'm really worried right now because we're T minus only a few weeks from school starting. Most school districts are still in the meetings with the epidemiologists just to even figure out what can happen. And no one has really, or for the most part, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that people have thought deeply about what, what instruction curriculum looks like because traditional curricula, to your point, aren't going to work that well in this new world. There's a lot of concern by parents about screen time. You've created a full-day schedule based on age. How much direct live instruction should there be, and how can California teachers make interactive lessons more fun? It depends on the age of the student, and for younger kids, if they get on the order of two hours spaced over the day of interactive time, you know, this could be a teacher reading them a book. It could be them doing an art lesson. I, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking about things that my five and a half year old is doing right now. And, and his teachers are doing an, a, an amazing job with it. And it's spaced over the day. So these sessions only last 20 minutes or 30 minutes at a time. He's able to see his friends over Zoom, interact with their teachers, uh, have conversations. And there's plenty of time still for going outside, running around. In fact, he's also doing PE over video conference. And we're fortunate we have a backyard. He's able to take the Chromebook to the backyard and do his PE. So my view on screen time, this was pre-COVID, was always, it's not inherently good or evil. Uh, what matters is what you're doing with it. There's some very productive uses of screen time. And there's some very negative uses of screen time. And screen time cannot squeeze out other very important things in your life, like play, running outside, and time with friends and family. So jump ahead to high school. How do you make it interesting so that students come back the second week? 
Yeah, I think it is a combination of carrots and sticks. I think there does need to be some form of accountability system where attendance, uh, and not just attendance, but participation is recorded for students to pass or, or to get a grade. Uh, but you don't want it to feel like forced uh, attendance. The more that the students want to come, the better, to your point. And there, that is really all about, as I said, pulling them out of the screen. Make it a Socratic dialogue. It should not be 30 kids show up on a Zoom session and that I, as the teacher, lecture to them for 30 minutes. I should give them an interesting task. I should ask them their opinions. I should regularly poll them. What is your point of view? Okay, you said yes. She said no. What's your rebuttal for her argument? Or why, I'm going to put all the people who said yes into one breakout and all the people who said no into another or, or mix them up so that we can see who convinces whom. That's the type of thing that makes the Zoom sessions really interesting. I do a thing on Sunday mornings. I was doing this pre-COVID in person, but now we're doing it over Zoom where it's a Socratic dialogue with friends and family about, you know, how do we become better people? And, you know, why are we on this planet and things like that? And it's all about, you know, I just act as the moderator and I ask questions and then I encourage people to flow off of each other's points. One of the things that's come up just in the last few weeks are these parents who are trying to organize these learning pods, bringing tutors, outside teachers, and so on, and kind of create their own alternative way of teaching their kids. It's not easy to just come up with materials and uh, you know, kind of have a spontaneous curriculum. I'm wondering whether you see any downsides to these learning pods, even though one can understand why parents would be motivated to do that. And of course, there are also the equity issues that have been raised. But just in terms of coming up with these materials, I mean, you guys invest lots of time and effort and resources into coming up with remote materials that are going to work for kids. Yeah. No. Well, first of all, the equity issue is a very real issue. And, you know, I've talked to many districts in the spring and, you know, some of their arguments why they didn't move on distance learning was, well, there's 10 or 20 percent of the population that won't have access. But what I pointed out to them, and I, st I still strongly believe, is if you don't do any form of distance learning, the top 50% are going to get into pods, hire tutors, et cetera. So they're going to be fine. It's those people who are between the 15th percentile and the 50th percentile that if the school doesn't support them, they're going to be lost. But they do have the internet action, uh, connections and they do have the support. So it's important for people to move forward. And I definitely... I think every family needs to do what they need to do to be able to support their children. So I think it's it's fine if families want to get put pods together and the pods are valuable. Not only can you pool resources, but then the kids can socialize together. And for very young kids, that the emotional development is incredibly important. In terms of the curriculum or the materials, you know, I think it now is easier than ever to put some of this stuff together. Obviously, you have resources like Khan Academy, you know, for math. We essentially have coverage of all of the standards that families would need. You know, we have Khan Academy kids, pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, and then elementary, middle, high school, and even early college, all of the math content for students to work on it and get feedback and for pod leaders to understand where the students are, the high school sciences, things like uh, SAT prep. Uh, and, you know, I'm a big fan. I know it's somewhat controversial in, in certain education circles around a lot of the work of E.D. Hirsch. You know, he has the core knowledge framework, you know, and he's written these books. I have a couple of them in the bookshelf behind me of, you know, what, what your sixth grader needs to know, everything your fifth grader That's needs. That's kind of a core curriculum kind of thing, right? Exactly. And I'm, I'm not going to say that E.D. Hirsch core knowledge plus Khan Academy and maybe some Quizlet flashcards to support the E.D. Hirsch. That isn't a full schooling model, but that could ensure that your child over the course of this next year as we're in this kind of emergency state, continues to learn and continues to learn some of the, the, the core knowledge and the core skills uh, that's going to make sure that they don't fall behind. Would you suggest that Khan Academy is really useful for going back to school for, for lots of kids who will be way behind? And so 
how do you bring those students up to grade level? Is this the way that you would recommend Khan Academy and its sort of mastery approach? Um, is Khan Academy more vital now than ever? Yeah, I mean, to your point, even pre-COVID, our main argument, which we have a lot of research to back it up, is the main reason why students had so much trouble, especially in math, had nothing to do with their innate ability, had nothing to do, uh, they could have an incredible teacher, is that they had accumulated gaps in their knowledge. And then all of a sudden those gaps accumulate and nothing makes sense in a math class. If you allow students to work at their own time and pace, fill in those gaps, make sure they master them, then all of a sudden they can race forward. And we've seen that with many teachers who started even their sixth graders at first or second grade math to fill in all their gaps. In COVID, this issue, to your point, is even more severe. The variance, the gaps are going to be that much wider. And so that's why we actually just launched what we call Get Ready for Grade Level courses. Like There's a Get Ready for Sixth Grade course. What that does is a student can take the course challenge. If a student does well on it, which is sampling the entire course, they get a 90% on it, they're ready for sixth grade. And they can learn that at their own time and pace. If they get a 60 or 70 or 80%, they could probably start engaging with the sixth grade grade level, but the teacher could say, hey, but keep working on these gaps. And if a student's doing worse, getting 20 or 30 percent, then, hey, you should work on the get ready for grade level material, master those concepts so that you can really have a strong foundation. I see where you have partnered with a number of California districts, Madera, Long Beach and Pajara Valley Unified, which we actually featured in a webinar. What will you be doing with them in the fall? And can other districts become partners, too? Yeah, well, we, we've been doing with them, this is all pre-COVID, something called a district offering where a, a whole series of districts says we love Khan Academy, but we want to be able to have all of our students in the district use it. But to do that, we have to have support for our teachers, uh, training for them, integration with our rostering systems, uh, district dashboards. And so Khan Academy started building those things over the course of the past year. They do co-resource that because we're philanthropically funded, so we can only do so much. It costs us about $10 per student a year to do that. But and then obviously you can imagine during... COVID, that's become that much more relevant because they're leaning even more heavily on, on Khan Academy. We're talking with Sal Khan, founder of the Khan Academy. Sal, just quickly, you mentioned you have a five-year-old son, and what school district is he in? Yeah, so I have three kids, 11, 9, and 5 and a half. And six years ago, I started a school essentially underneath our offices. I wrote One World Schoolhouse in 2012 around... You know, part of One World Schoolhouse is reimagining what education could be like if we were to really anchor on mastery learning, personalization, things like that, peer-to-peer -peer learning, uh, give more time and space for kids to explore, really give more agency to teachers as well. And so uh, we created a lab school uh, under, underneath our offices. And so my kids go to that lab school. The teachers there have done an incredible job. They really didn't even skip a beat when it came to virtualizing because the school has always been focused on helping students build the metacognitive traits of agency and independence. So they've always been focused on helping kids unlock their goals and where they want to get to uh, versus just focused on the content and the skill practice or delivery. They do that as well, uh, but they obviously leverage tools like Khan Academy to give them more leverage on the, the, the metacognitive. And will they be offering distance learning too? I imagine under state regulations they will. It's a lab school, so we're looking at the research. We're data-informed, and right now the school is looking at for the youngest kids, for the K-1s, to actually open up in tents in parking lots. So to do outdoor schools, similar to what happened in the tuberculosis crisis about 100 years ago, because the data looks pretty compelling that students under nine don't spread it. And obviously, if you're outdoors, it's a lot safer. So and they're working with the county right now to see if they can get the exemption for that. And then if that works, they might explore the second or third graders as well and then see how, how to evolve as conditions arise. You know, the luxury of a lab school is that 
we can have these flexibilities and, and push the envelope based on, you know, what, what data makes sense. Well, if you get a waiver for holding school outdoors, I bet a lot of districts will be watching and considering that option too. If I were emperor, especially for the kindergartners, first graders, second graders, tent schools seem very compelling because especially for that age, the play and the social, emotional and the in-person is just so, so important. And frankly, the parents at that age need a break as well for their own emotional and mental well-being. Schools are opening in just a few weeks and you suggesting that most school districts are not really prepared for this comprehensive distance learning program that they are expected now to provide. In the next few weeks, what would you recommend are the key things that they should be doing to be as prepared as possible? What I say is focus on the basics, reading, writing, and math. Those are the ones that you absolutely have to get right. The kids cannot atrophy. This bizarre situation we're in could very easily last this entire school year. So we have to plan accordingly. I think in that, it's all about finding high quality tools for the kids to do asynchronously that also has accountability. Khan Academy is very good in math, at the high school level also in science. There's also many other tools, the Lexias, the Nuzellas, the Raz Kids of the World for younger kids in English and language arts. Asynchronous learning can also happen with books and just writing in, in a journal or on a, on a doc. And uh, asynchronous learning is when kids, they're working on their own, not directly with a teacher, right? Yeah. I mean, homework has always been asynchronous, <laughs> but it's a fancy word for that. And then try to make sure that kids have at least, in, especially in reading, writing, math, three to five, call it 30 minute touch points a week that are as interactive as possible you know, more shorter, small group sessions uh, where kids can talk about goal setting, how to get unblocked, and really feel part of well, a community. Well, we've been talking with Sal Khan, who has really been a pioneer in distance learning. Thanks for talking with us today. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Sal Khan, founder and CEO of the Khan Academy. By the way, if you haven't checked out the Khan Academy site in a while, I encourage you to do so. There really is a vast trove of material there that should be usually valuable during this tough era of distance learning we are entering. And uh, I realize not only for K-12 students, but college students. And I think most people associate the Khan Academy with math, but in fact, they offer a lot more than that. Science, computing, history, art, economics, civics, and other subjects. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald, still toiling in the remote producing trenches. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Be well, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.